0: Morning. So uh, before we get started, I want to ask you to do something for us, for me this week. Would you pray for your ECC staff? The pastors and directors are going to be going away on Tuesday and Wednesday to do some uh, praying, some waiting on the Spirit, some sharing together, um, some brainstorming, some thinking, and some team building, and we would love to have your prayers for us. Pray that we will become a stronger team, pray that we will hear from God's Spirit, and that we will also have some fun together. we like to have fun together. We'd appreciate that. So a couple weeks ago, September the 5th, I preached the second sermon in this series of uh, Deeper Water. And uh, that, the passage that was from Genesis 3, and we talked there in part about Adam and Eve's failure to trust God, to believe that what God had provided for them was enough, and this then led them to rebel against God. From that, I borrowed from um, author, Catholic priest Jacques Philippe, who tells us that there are three basic responses we find that when we find that life is not going the way we want uh, that, we can, we, that we can respond to these things with. These three options were this. Rebellion, this is what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. They disobeyed God's um, commandment to them, ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Resignation, simply giving up. Uh, to hopelessness and despair, saying this is how it is. And then there was consent. This was the Apostle Paul's choice in 2 Corinthians 12, where uh, he had this thorn in the flesh. He never really tells us exactly what it was, but he begged God to take it away from him. God did not. He simply said, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough for you. And consent is the, is the idea of recognizing that it's a reality, what it is we're dealing with, and uh, we had better uh, at least welcome God's work in it, even if we can't uh, welcome what it is that's going on. Then I finished by leading us all in the welcoming prayer, which I wanna just repeat it for you so you can hear how uncomfortable it might be. (laughs) Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me in this moment because I know that it is for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for security. I let go of my desire for approval. I let go of my desire for control. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God and His healing, action, and grace within. When I first encountered this prayer uh, several years ago, it was very meaningful to me almost right off the bat. It just fit where I was at the time and... uh, place I was wrestling with God on some things. I talked to my wife, Kim, about it, and she said it was not one of her favorite prayers when she first heard it. She didn't like it at all. And I imagine that some people might feel that way now. She she sees it as meaningful now, but uh, not initially. So that got me to wondering how people heard or responded to uh, that sermon a couple of weeks ago, the welcoming prayer, or the idea even of choosing consent over rebellion or resignation. What has surprised me is that several of you who have undergone in the past year pretty significant suffering and loss reached out to me to tell me that that meant a lot to you, that that was helpful to you, that the prayer or the idea of consent, that that was actually helpful. And that was very encouraging because my concern was that those were the people who would find this the hardest to engage in. But instead they received it well. I think they have something to teach the rest of us about suffering and loss and trusting God in the midst of our pain. For that is one of the key ways that God transforms us. That is one of the key ways that God takes us into deeper water. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, is our passage today. It is the first part of a larger passage going all the way to verse 11. This entire section, verses 1 through 11, is a bit of a breather, between two rather heavy portions of Paul's letter to the Romans. In the first four chapters, Paul lays out quite a bit of theological content, which he very briefly summarizes in the first two verses of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In and through Christ we have peace with God, we have grace, we have hope in the glory of God. What do these words mean? Peace with God is more than just inner peace. I think we often think of that. The peace, you know, peace with God is having inner peace. It is peace between God and us as if we were warring parties. Paul says as much a little further down in the chapter verse 10 when he says that we were once God's enemies. He uses this language. Because of this peace treaty that God has made with us, we have now gained access by faith in Jesus into the grace of God. And this grace is, of course, in part the grace that saves us, but it's more than that. It also sustains us. God's favor toward us in Christ is ongoing. We are not just saved for eternity. We are saved for here and now. There are blessings of God's grace to enjoy even now. We stand in that grace even now. In the last part of verse 2, Paul tells us that we can now boast in the hope of the glory of God. Well, what, what is the glory of God? And why does it, is it supposed to give us hope? Paul elaborates, as he does with a few things in this passage uh, later on in Romans, he elaborates on this glory in chapter 8. So there we read in verses 18 to 19, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The hope, Paul goes on to say, a couple of verses down from there, is that one day, verse 21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. There was glory that we human beings had in the Garden of Eden that we shared, that has been lost. There is glory, that is honor and prestige, that all of creation longs for when God's presence and God's nature will be infused and displayed throughout all of creation, the new creation once more. There is glory, again, honor, prestige, that we who have been made in God's image are destined for. There is a glory that we are destined for an inheritance. In Christ, that glory has both been restored and is being restored. We and all of creation are becoming everything God intended. This is something, Paul says, that creation waits and groans for. We were made in God's image to be God's benevolent vice regents, to exercise God's authority, God's power, on God's behalf. And now because we know where, we're, where things are headed, because we know that God will bring all of it to completion, we who have experienced the grace of God can boast in the hope of the glory of God. We can celebrate the destination toward which we are headed, and we can celebrate that in, in and through us, this new creation, which is off in the future somewhere, is already rolling back and working itself, birthing itself into our world, in and through us. We are a part of this new creation. Then Paul, uh, we go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul makes a hard left turn. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. We can also boast in our sufferings. And I want to slam on the brakes right there. We can boast in our sufferings. Why would we do that? The NIV substitutes the word glory in our sufferings, but the word, I think probably because boasting has a negative context, but the word is boast. We can boast in our suffering because we have confidence in where God is taking things and where we are headed, and because suffering does something in us, accomplishes something in us, that nothing else can. We can boast in our suffering because we know where we are headed, And because suffering does something in us that nothing else can do. Suffering is a part of our transformation. Suffering can take us to deeper water. I know, it stinks. But that is one of the ways God does some of his best work. To put it another way, there are some things God wants to do in us that simply cannot be done any other way but through suffering. Suffering, biblically speaking, does not have to mean catastrophic loss. It certainly can, but it doesn't have to. The word translated as suffering is, literally means pressure. Metaphorically, it means all sorts of difficulties. Suffering can be anything that hurts us or irritates us. Any place in life where we're not getting our own way. When things in our lives and our relationships are not going the way we want to lesser and greater degrees, we can say we're suffering. And it seems awkward to call it suffering, right? We don't want to diminish the genuine, substantial suffering that other people have gone through. So it feels funny for us to say that. But while suffering a trial at work or about with the flu is one thing and suffering cancer, a cancer diagnosis or the loss of a loved one is another thing, they are all suffering of different levels. And make no mistake, God can use it all. Where does suffering come from? Suffering may come from the reality that we live in a broken and fallen world. Bad things happen. We may suffer because of our own foolishness. We do something stupid, we reap what we sow. We may suffer for doing the wrong thing, or we may suffer for doing the right thing. And while it's important to point out and to emphasize that Not all suffering is caused or sent by God. I would say most of it is not. It's just a part of the process of living life on this planet. We can also suffer because it is God's way of disciplining us, according to Hebrews chapter 12. In all of it, however, whether it is sent by God, caused by our own foolishness or through no fault of our own, in all of it, God is able to transform us. And because of this, we can boast in our suffering. In and through our suffering, and in all things, as Paul says later on in eight twenty-eight Romans 8.28, God is at work. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Back in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, Paul fleshes this out in an outline, in a process. But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Perseverance or endurance in the ancient sense of the word was highly valued as a virtue. Perseverance through adversity was seen as the mark of a noble and strong and loyal character. We use the word in a similar way today. The word for character here is a word that is derived from the quality of withstanding a test. Proof through trial. It refers to something or someone that has been put to the test and measured up. So almost by definition, you can't get to character without going through a trial. I am told that, in fact, if you visit a potter in some places in the Middle East, you can pick up a clay pot that has been through the fire of the furnace. You will see a word stamped on the bottom of it, Dokiamas. That word is derived from the same word that we find in Romans 5, verse 4, and is translated as suffering or character, excuse me. Character is something that is shaped by external factors like suffering, but it also requires a decision on our part. We must decide that we will respond to the suffering in such a way that our character is nourished and formed, approved for God's purposes. It's a choice. So if you've been a part of the evangelical Christian world for as long as I have, uh, the name Johnny Erickson Tata will mean something to you. You will know who she is. Johnny was paralyzed at 17 years of age in 1967 when she dove into the shallow waters of Chesapeake Bay. I don't know if you can tell that or not, but she shockingly looks a lot like Don Bodie in that upper left-hand picture, I must say. But uh, she paints with her teeth. She holds the paintbrush and does that and creates artwork. She's a lot more than that, but that's what she became sort of famous for. And I can pontificate for you all day long on um, the role that suffering can play in our lives, but I would much rather hear from a mature person of faith who has suffered and wrestled with that suffering and has found a way to love and worship God in the midst of it. And this is what Johnny Erickson Tata says about suffering. God uses suffering to purge sin from our lives, strengthen our commitment to Him, force us to depend on grace, bind us together with other believers, produce discernment, foster sensitivity, discipline our minds, spend our time wisely, stretch our hope, cause us to know Christ better, make us long for the truth, lead us to the repentance of sin, teach us to give thanks in times of sorrow, Increase faith and strengthen character. If we rebel against the suffering, we may become embittered. We may become angry and we may make things worse. That's not to say that we should not seek to alleviate or transform suffering. I want you to remember, Jacques-Philippe defined rebellion as a denial or a rejection of reality. To rebel against the cause of suffering is a good thing. To rebel against suffering by denying it or ignoring it, however, is not healthy and not a good thing, and it is not the path that Johnny took. Or we, we can respond to suffering with resignation. That is, we just give in to despair and we lose hope. Johnny did not take that path either. The reality is suffering always transforms us. The question is, when it does, Which direction is it transforming us? Into which direction? Toward perseverance and character and hope? Or toward anger and bitterness and apathy? Toward the glory of God? Displayed in and through us? Or toward something else? Something far less? How do you respond to suffering in your life? To anyone who knows the story of Johnny Erickson Todd, it is clear that she chose consent and God has transformed her and transformed her suffering. In one place, this is amazing, in one place she says of her suffering, This paralysis is my greatest mercy. What kind of person have you become on the inside with 50 years? paralysis that you can say that this paralysis is my greatest mercy to boast in our suffering is not to enjoy the suffering it is to anticipate what can come out of it and honestly the fact that anything good can come out of such suffering is indeed a mercy it is the hope of glory I've been spending a lot of my reading time lately reading the 500-year-old work entitled The Interior Castle by Teresa Avila. Teresa endured illness and family loss. Her, her mother died when she was 11, and she could have gone in the direction of being angry at God, but she pushed into her faith and persevered. She was a Spanish noblewoman who, at the age of 20, felt called to go into religious service. She became a nun. In 1536, she joined the Carmelite Convent of the Incarnation. In her later years, as she matured, she became an important figure in the Catholic Church, especially as, uh, in her role as helping to reform monastic orders during that time. But even then, she endured persecution and misunderstanding. One representative from the Pope described her as a restless wanderer, disobedient, and stubborn woman who, under the title of devotion, invented bad doctrines, moving outside the cloister against the rules of the Council of Trent, teaching as a master against St. Paul's orders that women should not teach. Teresa illustrates the Apostle Paul's point. She persevered through hardship, and that developed her character. In the end, she produced work that to this day is read by Catholics and Protestants alike. It's really funny, there's one line early on in the book, she goes, I can't imagine anyone will ever want to read what I've written. She was writing it for her sisters. And we laugh because it's very widely read to this day. And later, Teresa became one of the patron saints of Spain. She too has words to offer us on suffering, some of them rather clever. She noted that suffering is uh, part and parcel of the life of the faithful followers of Christ. She said, we always find that those who walked closest to Christ were those who had to bear the greatest trials. Elsewhere, she identified suffering as a form of prayer for those of a, who offer their suffering up to God. She wrote with no small amount of sarcasm, one must not think that a person who is suffering is not praying. He is offering up his sufferings to God, and many a time he is praying much more truly than one who goes away by himself and meditates his head off. And if he has squeezed out a few tears, thinks that is prayer? She's delightful. And finally, speaking of the hope that we have in Christ, she wrote, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. She knew God. In part because of what she suffered. The hope of glory. Hope in the hereafter and hope even now. Paul finishes off Our section, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Older translations say disappoint us. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We can have hope because God's love has been poured into our hearts and the word used here indicates an extravagant and abundant amount of love has been poured into our hearts. The cause and the source of our hope is the immense and incomprehensible love that we talked about last week that God has lavished upon us and poured into our hearts by the presence of His Holy Spirit. So, shift gears. It was one year ago this Sunday. that we took part in the longest and the most difficult and painful congregational meeting I have ever been a part of in my life. I do not bring this up to rehash everything in a negative way, quite the opposite. What led up to that meeting, what happened in that meeting... And in the year that followed was difficult and painful for me. It was difficult and painful for counsel. It was difficult and painful for many people in our congregation. And while I don't want to go through all of it again, I would not trade it for anything in the world. Now I'm aware there are some of you here or watching us and worshiping with us online who have no idea what I'm talking about or have very little idea of what I'm talking about or you've only heard snippets and that sort of thing. I can't go through all of that here. I don't think it would be profitable. We don't have the time. I started to. I said, this is going to take forever. We're not going to do that. If you want to know what I'm talking about, I mean, I shared some of it a couple of weeks ago, but if you want to know what I'm talking about, you can reach out to me, or I think anybody else on council would be glad to talk with you about it. My point is this. In and through that hardship, something began to happen to me and in me. And it continued into my sabbatical. And something is happening to our staff and something is happening to our council. We are becoming healthier. We are becoming more aware of and in tune with the Holy Spirit. We are becoming more passionate and enthusiastic and hopeful for ECC's future ministry and mission. During my time on sabbatical, I had a lot of time to think and pray and read and journal. And during this time, God broke Loosed a lot of things in me that need to be broken loose. God renewed things in me and God birthed some new things in me. God birthed in me a more, a deeper, a more consistent relationship with him. And a more consistent ability to follow the Apostle Paul's instruction which I'm only just now beginning to truly understand. To pray without ceasing. I have never... I have never had this much peace, this much joy, this much energy, this much passion than I have in the weeks since I returned. Never. I have come to experience more of God, and I want all of you to grow in your experiences of God, wherever you are in your relationship with God. Wherever that is, I want you to grow in your experience of God. You know, I used to just enjoy learning new things and just pushing and just learning and growing and reading all sorts of theological things. I still do some of that. That is not my desire anymore. My desire is simply to know more of God. Personally, experientially. My first two council meetings after sabbatical were the two best council meetings I have ever been a part of and I have been doing it for more than 29 years. I'm actually excited to go to council meetings now. They're still a little long, but I'm excited to go to council meetings now. Both times I came back from the last two council meetings, it was late. Kim says to me, Are you okay? I said, I'm great. She has never heard that before. The end of the last council meeting, 10 o'clock at night, people are tired, and we spend 15 minutes praying for the youth. This church. Here's why I say all this. I am convinced, I am convinced that had I not gone through the trials, the difficulties, the pain of the last 18 months, the difficult congregational meeting, difficult conversations with counsel, my own anger and bitterness and insecurity and doubt. I would not be where I am today. Where I have a growing and greater sense of God's presence and the Spirit's work in my life than I've ever known. I am convinced that if we as a congregation had not gone through the difficulty of the past year, and I realize in some ways we're still in it, what I see happening in my staff and our council would not be happening either. We are growing, becoming a more healthy and passionate group of people. And in terms of what I've experienced, I cannot speak for other people, but in terms of what I have experienced, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't go back and change a thing. I don't want to do it again. Don't misunderstand me. But I would not go back and change what has happened. One of my favorite poets is Mary Oliver. I haven't read a ton of what she's written, but everything I've read I've loved. I became aware of a very short poem she had written. This is, this is how God is working me th- these days. It appeared in my email inbox on Friday. And it was related to some other stuff, but there it was. I said, oh, this is perfect. It goes like this. It's called uh, The Uses of Sorrows. The Uses of Sorrows. In my sleep I dreamed this poem. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. It's a little cryptic, as poetry can be, of course, and certainly not all of us uh, would want to call what we have dealt with our lesser struggles, which is where I consider mine to be, to be really clear we would not be comfortable saying, well, it's a box of darkness that feels too strong, maybe. But the principle's the same. Difficult things, hard things, suffering, trial, setbacks, minor irritations, if we let them, can be gifts for us too. It can be God's mercy to us, as Johnny Erickson Tata called her, suffering. And so we too can boast in our sufferings. So as I close, as we close, I want to invite you to a moment of silence. And then after a moment of silence, I'm going to pray a prayer on our behalf, a prayer of relinquishment that you will find in the Bible App Live event. I encourage you to be a part of that if you can. If you just don't want to do that, if you email me every week if you want, I will send you a link to all this stuff you don't want to find in the Bible app. There are other resources there on prayer as well. So I invite you to join me in a moment of silence, and during this time of silence, I invite you to hold up to God. You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to pray for anything. Just lift up to God your own suffering and pain, big or small. Your own difficulties and hardships. Or, if you prefer, you know of someone who's suffering, you can lift them up too. Just hold them before God in prayer. You don't have to pray a thing. Just lift them up. And then I'll close this in prayer, okay? Let's go together to the Lord for a moment of silence. Today, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. May your will be our delight today. May your way have perfect sway in us. May your love be the pattern of our living. We surrender to you our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions. Do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. We place into your loving care our family, our friends, our future. Care for them with a care that we can never give. We release into your hands our need to control, our craving for status, our fear of obscurity. Eradicate the evil, purify the good, and establish your kingdom on earth for Jesus' sake. Amen.